a couple of weeks ago when we finished up with John 12, uh, you'll know that, uh, or you'll remember of course, that I said that we had come to almost an end point, a halfway point really, uh, in John's gospel, an end point of the first half, where Jesus has just given such an emphatic appeal to people with the gospel, with the good news of what he has come to do, and given them the encouragement to turn from their sin and turn to him in faith, believing in him. We see that at the end of chapter uh, chapter 12. He says, walk in the light while you have the light. So now as we come into chapter 13, this marks a five-chapter section in the book where we go between 13 and 17, where we have Jesus almost in a, a little retreat with a final meal with his disciples. He wants to show them his love. He wants to teach them well. And this is the start of this little section that we're dealing with tonight from John chapter 13. It's just him, Jesus, and his disciples. Before we come to read from verse 1 through to 17, uh, let's pray together and ask for God's help in understanding what we come to. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken in your word in the book of Isaiah, saying, this is the one whom I will esteem, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. May we humble ourselves before your authoritative word. May we come with hearts that are truly sorry for sin, and receive from you this word that you seek to plant in us and through which you seek to change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 13, reading from verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. 
Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. This is God's word. I have preached on the issue of service and the issue of humility a number of times in the years that I've been a pastor. And uh, it it, it tends to just uh, make you all the more aware of the instances of pride uh, and a lack of humility in your life. And, And it comes to the fore in many, many different ways because pride has many different faces, doesn't it? Our self-righteousness kind of bubbles to the surface in many different ways. I'll give you two examples. One, a very stupid and clear example, and one a bit more subtle. Number one, I go home from a hard day at the office. I labor in the word, you understand. And I go in, and there is my wife waiting behind the door just as I open it, handing me my seven-month-old son. I think I'm going to go for a lie down, she said. Pardon? Do you not know that I have been working all day? You know what they call me? Two words. Maybe one. Breadwinner. It's, it's one word, isn't it? Breadwinner. I could see it. I didn't mean it all, but I could feel it. I, could, I knew it in my heart. I could hear it in my head. I thought, you're so prideful. I come home expecting to be served rather than going home expecting to serve. Pride. Forgive me, Lord. Second instance. It was a bit more subtle. Andy mentioned it this morning, actually. Uh, He stole my illustration. And uh, pride bubbled to the surface right there in our morning service. (laughs) Oh, that was my illustration, I thought. No, I'm going to use it anyway. The London riots. You know, this complete lack of respect for authority that we've seen, property vandalized, looting taking place, that wee poor student bleeding, having suffered a broken jaw, helped his feet and then robbed. Despicable, wasn't it? What was your response in that situation? Again, I was listening to the radio to and from the office and the callers were really quite angry when they phoned in describing the rioters as uneducated poorly parented people who were less than human. They kept calling them feral rats, (laughs) wild, undomesticated vermin whose street presence, in their view, merited not police intervention, but the army rent to kill in combat, nonetheless. What's your response? What did you think as you watched those scenes develop? I, I found myself agreeing with many of the callers just quickly but then it hit me again boom pride right there once more I realized I was thinking of myself more highly than I ought there was that self-righteousness bubbling to the surface I was seeing myself as better than them living out that very self-righteousness that Andy was talking about this morning 
And isn't it just so easy to do? It's, it's so easy for us to do. And it's so easy because there are so many faces to pride. There's a kind of economic pride and economic self-righteousness. I've, I have more money than you. I live in a better neighborhood than you. Therefore, I am better than you. Or there's intellectual self-righteousness. I have a better education than you. I am, I am more articulate than you. Therefore, I am, that makes me superior to you. Or there's the moral self-righteousness. I would never do the kind of things that you do. Therefore, surely I must be better than you. See how prideful those are? That can be a little more subtle, that that latter example, I think. But they're across the whole spectrum of, of subtlety or overt display of pride. We see it in many, many respects. Here is the big problem with this. Prideful self-righteousness will result in that poor attitude to others and the consequence of having such a poor and a negative, even superior attitude towards other people results in a complete unwillingness to serve others. Which is a problem for us, isn't it? When we as a church are called to serve one another, to love one another in all respects, I think what we see this unwillingness to serve others, even in this passage in John chapter 13 that we're walking through tonight, John doesn't quite record it in these, uh, in, uh, John doesn't record it here, but I think the discussions that we have in the other uh, gospels, particularly Luke, which talk about at this point in time, the disciples having an arguing, argument amongst themselves as if to say, which one of us is the greatest? pride again emerging to the fore right at this point in the upper room Jesus this activity that he performs will address that and will steamroll that actually what's more the evidence of pride I think is found in the fact that John chapter 13 tells us that when Jesus gets up to wash his disciples feet they're already at the table The meal is actually being served, which means that as they arrived into this borrowed room, no one has bothered to pick up the basin and the jug and to wash the feet. That would have been a beautiful thing to do. Peter, brothers, let me wash your feet. No, none of that. It was a menial thing to do. And I think this is why what we see in this text is so important. For them, yes, for us, absolutely Positively, it tells us that it teaches us that hearts full of love express themselves in the humble service of all, and that's exactly what we are called to. Negatively, as I said, it steamrolls pride. There are three questions that I want us to ask tonight, just as we walk through this. Three simple questions, just to, I hope, just open this all up for us, okay? Number one, what did Jesus know? This, that's key to understanding his action then. Number two, what did Jesus do? And number three, what does it actually mean? And I'll I'll address that in two ways. Number one, to the Christian, and number two, to the non-Christian who might be with us. So number one, what did Jesus know? Look with me at verses one to three. Quite simply, the first thing, Jesus knew he was about to die. Jesus knew that the time had come to leave the world 
and go to the Father. Jesus has been very clear throughout his ministry. We've seen it in many different ways, even particularly in John chapter 12 saying, now is the time. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus, Jesus knows where he's heading. He's heading to the cross where he will die for the sins of many. The cross is imminent. Everything, that, that introduction in verse 1 just tells us that the cross is imminent. So Jesus knew he was about to die. Secondly, Jesus knew he was being betrayed. Verse 2 and verse 11 tell this. It tells us this, the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And in verse 11, he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. I'm not going to camp on that because we're going to deal with Judas next week. But suffice to say, he knew he was about to die. He knew he was being betrayed. Thirdly, he knew that he had absolute power and authority. Verse 3, Jesus knew the Father had put all things all things under his power. What an immense statement of this Jesus Christ. Just a man? No. Almighty God does not trust, entrust all authority and power to a mere man. This is, if you remember from John 1, this is the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh. And we are seeing his glory. The glory of whom? one and only okay he is God the God man God in the flesh so we know he's about to die we know he's being betrayed we know he has absolute power and authority and 3b Jesus knew that he had come from God there's John 1 again and was returning to God those are four pretty incredible things to just camp on, just think through. Jesus absolutely knew all four of those things without question. And what is he going to do with that knowledge? What is he going to do with that power? He has all authority. Every atom in the universe at this point is poised, just waiting for his very command. He could have done anything he wanted ordering a little blast of divine wrath for Judas. No, none of that. Endowed with such authority, knowing that the cross was imminent where he would go and die for the sins of many. Verse 3 ends with this. So he, what? What did Jesus do? Oh, he takes on a towel. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, pouring water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Six little things that John just says, short little Accounts of what Jesus is doing as if to slow us down and say, look, do not miss this. The one endowed with, with such heavenly authority and power is humbling himself to take on a towel. But what is he doing? What actually is he doing? Well, we see even at the end of 
uh, verse 1, a bit of an explanation for us. He is showing them, his disciples, the full extent of his love. Even with that knowledge of what is to come, we see the completeness of his love. And this foot washing is just a part of that. We see the directional nature of that love, don't we? Jesus, uh, uh, having loved his own, so he has loved them perfectly in the past. We are now told he is going to love them perfectly in the future, and he's going to communicate that to them. Now, I think um, some translations, I don't know which one you have there, some translations have the word now in there. The NIV helpfully doesn't have it at the start of verse 1, which I think is good. Because what you can do if you have the word now there in your translation, it make you think, okay, just verses, this, these first 17 verses, this is just what Jesus taught. So this is his love. No, no, I think the NIV gets it right here by basically saying this is just before the Passover feast. This is what's happening. And the full extent of his love is going to start now with the washing of feet, and that's just part of it. And it's going to continue on through his promise of the Holy Spirit, through his help for his disciples, all the way to the cross where he will cry out, it is finished. He's showing his love all the way through this upper room discourse where he would have been perfectly entitled to be entirely preoccupied with himself, given the suffering that he was about to go through, given the betrayer that was sitting even in his presence. But he didn't. He loved them fully, totally, completely, to the uttermost That's how much he loved them. That's how much he loved all who have sinned against him. It's how much he loves all who will put their faith and trust in him. It's a remarkable depiction of his love. And a remarkable depiction of his willingness to serve despite his authority. And despite his power. Whenever we see earthly instances of people with power we tend to see these people have lots of servants I mean you even think of the recent uh, royal wedding with all of these carriages and all, you know all this fanfare and the number of servants round about who are just simply riding on the carriages and opening, door from there, opening doors for them and so on but no that's not what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is the one doing the serving It's an incredible scene. If you continue with me again in verse 4 and following, look at this. Don't miss this. At this point when these people, these disciples are bickering basically about which one is the greatest. Oh, I'm the best. He takes me to go and pray with them, you know. Oh, I'm the best. I'm the greatest. I get to keep the money back. Oh, I'm the greatest. I'm the one that went and got the lunch from the little boy so that we could feed all those people, you know the way it goes but with calmness with with total majesty I believe almost in silence Jesus stands up takes the pitcher pours it into the basin takes on that badge of servanthood the towel dresses himself basically like a slave and kneels to wash their feet one by one I think the disciples were quite possibly pained and sorrowful at seeing this sight. One of them had not (laughs) taken up this opportunity to serve others. 
And here is Jesus, the one that they have followed, the one that they have declared to be Lord. Even in John chapter 6, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? Their testimony of him is right enough. But they are not serving one another as he would so desire. Yet Jesus, so great, stoops so low. It's incredible. The one in whose heart beat the very pulse of eternal deity, Jesus Christ, to stoop down and wash these feet is is the greatest kind of humiliation, surely. But that's exactly what Jesus did. I think we get to see the evidence of the the shocking nature of Jesus' actions, even in verse 6, where he came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In the Greek, the emphasis there is on the you. Lord, you, my feet wash? He couldn't believe it. He certainly wouldn't like to entertain it. As Leo Morris says, the spectacle of a kneeling God is devastating for Peter. No, let God be seated on a throne holding the symbols of power. Let us be the ones to kneel. No wonder Peter is horrified when he sees Jesus just crouches at his feet. But here was his response. You do not realize now what I am doing. But later you will understand. We're going to get to that bit. But he tells him there is a future event that will soon make this foot cleansing immensely significant for Peter and for all really and Peter again saying no you shall never wash my feet with Jesus answering him unless I wash you you have no part with me and then Simon Peter the one with the foot shaped mouth just comes out He's after full immersion, isn't he? Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answers him. Says those precious words to him, you're clean. You've had a bath. You have been cleansed. You only need your feet washed. What is the significance of all of these Event of this washing of his disciples' feet. Jesus, knowing that he was about to die, be betrayed, all power and authority was his. That he had come from God, was returning to God. That's what he knew, which then accents and makes this washing of the feet all the more remarkable. It's an incredible thing to watch. So he shows them the full extent of, their, of his love by serving them so Humbly, What does it all mean? Well, we get the explanation in verses 12 to 17. Jesus, when he had finished washing their feet, put on his clothes, returned to his place and asked, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. And then he reaffirms just exactly who he is. He says that he is teacher. And that he is Lord. Teachers have students. Teachers give instruction to students. Which they are to learn. And that they are to apply in whatever field they are taught. Lords have subjects. Who command with authority. And by virtue of the position of subjects are 
basically expected to obey. So Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord, switches the, switches the, the order there for, for emphasis, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So the fact that Jesus Christ, <laughs> with, endowed with such authority, stoops to humbly serve his disciples, to serve them by doing this task of a slave, a menial thing that no one else would do, he is giving us an example to follow. He is, in, he is telling us that our pride should be steamrolled, that we should confess it, that we should ask for forgiveness, for it gets in the way of service. You should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example, verse 15, that you should do as I have done for you. We get this. He's just about to go and die. He is with his disciples for some of these final hours. He is giving them some teaching which will affirm for them, I love you to the very end. Even after this happens to me on the cross, even after I go beyond this, my love is with you. It is complete to the very end. Never forget that. But never forget this also. The example that I have set you. This turnaround of worldly values. I want to imprint into my church. Because this is how it's going to be built. And this is how my followers are going to live. They are not to be self-seekers. They are to be selfless. Serving one another, preferring the needs of the other to their own. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And the thing that brings it all together for us, verse 16 I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. We already know we are his servants, that the disciples here are his servants. Are we endowed with the knowledge that he had? Are we endowed with the power and the authority that Jesus Christ has? No. He truly is our Lord and King. And we are his subjects and we are accountable to him. And we should obey his every command. We are not in a position to usurp his authority to remove him from the throne and so take it ourselves and direct and dictate our own lives. No, we are called to remember our place and to serve accordingly. And basic, basic to all discipleship is our resolve then not only to address Jesus with polite titles, <laughs> teacher, Lord, but to actually truly follow his teaching and obey his commands. One of the, my favorite quotes in the world is this one from Andrew Murray, not the tennis player, I would add. The pastor and theologian who said this, if humility is the root of the tree, it must be seen in every branch, leaf and fruit. Okay? 
Who's the vine? Jesus. Who are the branches? We'll get to this in John 15. Us. In other words, if humility is the first, all including grace, of the life of Jesus, if humility is especially the secret of his atonement, his death, then the health and strength of our spiritual life will entirely depend on us putting this grace first too and making humility the primary thing we admire in him, one of the primary things that we ask of him, and one of the primary things for which we sacrifice all else in our relationships. Do we seek humility? Do you seek to be served? Or do you seek to serve? Are you greater than the master Jesus? Listen to the appeal of God in scripture. From Jesus as he asks of you in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. Or with Paul as he pleads with us from Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Or as Colossians 3.12 says, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Clothe yourselves in humility. I read this week a quote. I can't remember who said it. Uh, if I think it was McShane. If, if humility is the clothing we put on, how many of us in the church are scantily clad? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for all of us who would seek to follow Jesus Christ. For truly, if we claim to be Christian, it goes without saying we need to be like Christ. It's quite simple. So let's, let's try and apply this. Let's, get, let's try and apply this for us, for the church. What does this actually look like? Well, are we, are we selfless like Jesus? Or are we self-serving like the disciples were? Well, if you're self-serving, I suppose you will probably have a tendency to avoid any real effort for other people. You'll make no real sacrifice for other people. You won't respond to intimated needs. Your prayer life will probably be entirely focused on yourself. If indeed you pray at all. For it tends to be that with pride comes the self-sufficiency that, that means, well, we don't really feel a need to pray. Because we're doing quite well on our own. Self-serving people will never go one mile in serving one person never mind the extra mile there's a different facet to it it. again though others may be quite willing to serve others actively participating in Christian activities but yet still self-serving in the process you'll know that this is you if if you're looking for rewards or if continued activity is dependent and contingent on how thankful people are for how much effort you're putting in or how much 
praise you receive for your work. It's just self-service and pride really of a different kind. But humble people are far more thankful. Thankful to God. Ascribing to him the glory for everything that they have and they see. They pray. They, humble people do unexpected things for you which bless your heart as an expression of real kindness. Humble people are teachable, knowing that they are not the beholders of some supreme knowledge and they know the sinfulness of their hearts to the extent that they know they they can be wrong. They don't have a low view of themselves, but really just a realistic view. The call for us then is to let every single one of our days be days of humility where we actually humble ourselves to to get up out of our beds and think not about what am I going to do to make this day good for me? How can I serve myself in this day? But to get up and think, well, how can I bless the lives of other people? Let this be a day of humility where, yeah, you know, I, I cover over the frailties and the weaknesses of other people. Where I love the things that God is doing in the lives of others and so praise them. These are the things that we must seek to do as a church. And we need to do it because our pride will truly loot every believer of the opportunity to live selflessly for Jesus and to live humbly like Jesus. Imagine what our marriages would look like. Imagine what our relationships would look like. Imagine what our friendships would be worth. Imagine the joys of of belonging to a church where everyone preferred the needs of others to their own. I just think, imagine the possibility for ministry in a place like Edinburgh. It was John Stott that said, in every sphere of Christian discipleship, pride, get this, pride is your greatest enemy. And humility, your greatest friend. I'm sad to say that as I see my own heart, I often get those completely the wrong way around. That's why I appreciate the accountability of my wife. That's why I appreciate the accountability of brothers in the office. That's why I appreciate the accountability of brothers and sisters like you. These are the joys of belonging to a church together where we can lovingly, sensitively and humbly point out pride, point out sin and so bring about restoration and life for one another. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, glad you're here to think about this text with us. I mentioned earlier that when Jesus is washing the feet of Peter that that he talks almost mystically in verse 7 where he says, you don't realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. So basically saying, this event here is in need of a subsequent interpretation. But he also says in verse 8, unless I wash you, he doesn't say unless I wash just your feet. He says, unless I wash you, which points to something else that's coming again. And this something else that's coming is, of course, the cross where a person can be fully washed of their sin and made clean. 
So verse 10 tells us a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet, his whole body is clean. There is something that is possible and within reach or grasp that, that truly brings us a deeper cleansing rather than just the superficial, peripheral cleansing. Jesus is talking here, though it's in a sense a little bit of a sidetrack from the main point that Jesus is making through the text. He's talking about, he's quashing their pride, he's dealing with humility, and he's telling them, serve one another in love. Okay? But this is a, a he, he just picks up on this, this, this shrinking back of Peter and this objection to this situation by throwing in something deep and something precious for us to truly grasp a real spiritual truth that Jesus is moving towards humiliation for our part on our behalf where he quite clearly is saying that where he is going it's going to bring about a cleansing and not of feet but of souls, of hearts and Jesus makes it absolutely clear with Peter and therefore through that situation to us unless I wash you you have no part with me no part with Jesus whatsoever but we need to come to him or else our sin remains and with it God's wrath for that and our judgment because of that We need to come to Jesus for the cleansing of our sin, trusting in him, trusting that the cross is sufficient for our complete cleansing. And I pray that if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, you would get this, that you would hear, in a sense, Jesus saying through these words of scripture, you are clean. Here's why this is important. Here's why this fits. The very thing that may prevent your coming to Jesus to seek forgiveness is pride. It's pride. It's thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. It's not thinking of yourself with sober judgment. Psalm 10 verse 4 for me really highlights the main problem with this. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Pride causes us to forget about God and carry on as if our lives are all about us and carry on as if our lives are ruled by us and dictated by us. But that is not true. We are just people. And God exists and he is the sovereign creator of all things, including you. And so with that calls us to be accountable to him and as our master to obey him and submit ourselves to his loving rule and that's exactly the kind of rule it is it was Richard Sibbs that said if God has made us men let us not be prideful and make ourselves gods Let us not seek to rule our own lives, but come in humble submission before Jesus Christ, your King who humbled himself, not only to wash the feet of his disciples, doing the job of a slave, but humbled himself on a cross, doing the job that only the eternal Son of God could do.
the sinless one, perfect in all his ways, dying on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute, so that all who put their faith and trust in him may be made clean. And if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, actually Stott's quote, quote is just the same for you. Pride is your greatest enemy. And in regards to your eternal life, humility is your greatest friend. What should you do then? Well, you should sing this closing song with all your heart. We sing it often. Picking up on what Rodney said earlier on as he was leading the service, I wonder how often we get it. When I survey the wondrous cross, there's the place where all pride is leveled, isn't it? All pride is steamrolled. How can you be haughty? How can you be prideful when you stand there at the cross? When it was our sin that nailed him to it. No one is better than anyone else when we are standing there together at the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, all of the things in this world that I treasure and I struggle to let go of and I love to hold, I count but loss. And pour what? Contempt on all my... I hate my pride, you're saying as you sing that song. I hate it. Nothing else can do it. When we see that we are sinners, nothing but the Son of God on the cross of Calvary can save us. When we are there, we need to be humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. No one but Jesus can give us salvation. Let's stand and sing.